I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 23rd, 2017. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the triumphs of the Falcons and the Patriots, the almost coronation of Atlanta quarterback Matt Ryan, and whether we should be rooting for Tom Brady to smile smugly in his Tom Brady way at Roger Goodell at Super Bowl 51. Chris Ballard of Sports Illustrated will join us to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers' recent hot streak and whether the team's sudden friskiness vindicates now-deposed general manager Sam Hinkie. And we'll talk about the election of Tim Raines, Yvonne Rodriguez, and Jeff Bagwell to the Baseball Hall of Fame and how a project to make ballots public may have affected the voting. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Frisky. We're all very frisky. <laughs> This morning. And, well, Mike Pesca's a little Mike under Pesca the weather. Mike Pesca's not frisky. So There's your segue. Filling in for him. He's on a 90-minute contract. <laughs> it's uh, Jack Hamilton, Slate's pop critic and assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. It's the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll, and the Racial Imagination. Definitely has the most advanced degrees mm-hmm. on the panel today. Hello, Jack. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. This is truly an honor. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus, we're going to take advantage of Jack's musical know-how to assess the dude who plays the national anthem on the saxophone before Atlanta Falcons games. And that, Jack, is the real reason that you're on the show today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if national anthem sax guy is not enough to get you to sign up for Slate Plus, let me also make a pitch for Jack's Slate Academy on Pop Race in the 1960s, which was one of the best things on Slate last year or any year. Um, it was great, Jack. Thank you so much. That, that's, uh, that's high praise. Were there any sports references made in, in any of the um, five episodes? You know, I don't think so. it's quite possible that Marvin Gaye's national anthem came up. Um, there was an a, a episode where we talked a bit about Marvin Gaye. Um, that might have been the closest, uh, but I, I can't recall. And I'm sure we'll probably uh, end up talking about Marvin Gaye's national anthem later. We will. So you'll get the extra unreleased sports uh, part of Jack's Pop Academy on today's, <laughs> on today's Hang Up and Listen. Join Slate Plus for just $35 a year, and you'll get all five episodes of Jack's Pop Academy, plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. Sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangup plus. So, Jack, you are an unapologetic Patriots fan, correct? Or are you actually apologetic? 
Um, I would say that at this point, I'm very much a sort of self-loathing Patriot, <laughs> Patriots fan. Um, I actually just said Patriots fan right there. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, God, they make it awfully uh, difficult to root for them. But yeah, having grown up in the, in the Boston area, they are still uh, the only team that I um, fervently support in the NFL. So yeah, I'm still, I'm still on the train. So I feel like anytime you talk about the Patriots... Everyone who's within a 10-mile radius of the conversation just has to admit their biases going in. Like, are you, ag- are you against us? Are you for <laughs> us? Where do you stand, Stefan? I'm against. Though I must say, when I covered the NFL, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. Mr. Kraft. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mr. Kraft was a, a good source. And a, a fairly straight shooter. <laughs> so, so Kraft leaked to you. He leaked to me occasionally. So you like so I like Kraft part of Kraft. Um, <laughs> they did not let me. They were one of the teams that turned me down. Shockingly, to uh, to embed as, as oh my as god, a field goal kicker. Well, that was a big shock. We're gonna need to uh, not maybe maybe we don't have the prep time on this show, but we need to do like a whole imagined hypothetical few seconds of panic with the Patriots. What that would have been like. I mean, they've, are you going to do an introduction where we say what the scores of the <laughs> yeah, game yeah, yeah. were? Okay. I, I'm going to do that, but we had to get our biases on the table okay. first. Okay. All right. The introduction would read something like this if I had read it. On Sunday, in the land of professional football, the Falcons beat the Packers 44-21. The Patriots blew out the Steelers 36-17 to to clinch their places in the Super Bowl. Just two of the 10 games this postseason, those were Packers-Cowboys and Steelers Chiefs have been decided by fewer than 13 points. And these games definitely unquestionably stunk from a competitive balance standpoint. The games on Sunday, that is. The Packers defense could not slow down Atlanta quarterback Matt Ryan or receiver Julio Jones, who caught nine passes for 180 yards and two touchdowns. And Tom Brady, like Ryan, threw for almost 400 yards with no interceptions, while a dude named Chris Hogan proved that it is possible to get nine catches for 180 yards and two touchdowns without uh, being Julio Jones. The guy played three years of college lacrosse and one year of football at Monmouth, where he he did not even get 180 yards and— entire season. He ran for 180 <laughs> yards in a lacrosse game, though, because you run a lot in lacrosse. Very true. Um, just the fact that the Patriots have another white receiver who is not mm-hmm. Wes Welker, Danny Amendola, and Julian Edelman suggests that there is something odd going on with that franchise and that they know things that the rest of us don't know. How many uh, Super Bowls is this going to be, Jack? Uh, this will be the seventh Super Bowl appearance for for Brady and Belichick. Um, so, and if they win, it'll be the, the the fifth the fifth title. But yeah, I agree. There's something actually for me, even as a Patriots fan, um, something kind of exhausting about the whole sort of next man up culture of the <laughs> Patriots. Like at this point, like with Chris Hogan's sort of emergence into um, some sort of provisional stardom yesterday, like it just like. I can't, I can't really do it anymore. Like get invested in this is going to be the whole story of the next two weeks is this guy's, you know, rise from obscurity, all this sort of quirky facts about, about this guy. And it's like, I, yeah, I just find it after a while sort of hard to become uh, invested in the, in the narratives of these players, even as someone who roots for them. Well, we have Brady and Belichick to latch on to still, obviously. And uh, there are many feelings wrapped up around those, those guys, but there is something if annoying about it, completely successful and true and accurate about the next man, man of philosophy, because you saw the Steelers just totally fell apart when Le'Veon Bell went out with an injury. Mm-hmm. And that was disappointing and made for a much crappier game. But it definitely, I think, showed the strengths of the Patriots fan- franchise in stark contrast to those of the Steelers. Right. And well, what's the what's the common thread here? And it's Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And whether you hate them or not, you have to acknowledge that there is something intrinsically impressive about how Tom Brady has conducted his career, not just because he's thrown for a kajillion yards and he has won a lot of Super Bowls, but by all accounts, whether you hate the fact that he had a Make America Great hat in his locker or you're offended by his Make America Great again. I'm sorry, again. <laughs> um hat in his locker, or you're offended by the fact that he's married to a supermodel, or that he is a 
automaton in some ways talking to the media. Um, and he's just generally too handsome and tall and successful for most of us. You have to acknowledge that his ability as a, not just a thrower of a football, but a, a leader of an offense in this game is unparalleled. Tim Layden has a long and interesting piece about the connection that Brady has made and sustained with receivers going all the way back to when he started playing football, which wasn't when he was six years old. It was when he was in high school. And that does speak to a, a level of intelligence and talent that is surpassing. There's just something really fascinating about the contrast between these two teams, even though there is a lot similar about, you know, their passing offenses and their kind of acceptable but not great defenses. But Matt Ryan has been with the Falcons for nine years. I read yesterday that only Peyton Manning had been with a team for that long before making the Super Bowl for the first time. And that wow. if you don't make the Super Bowl with a team after, you know, four or five years, it's generally not going to happen. This Falcons team has, and I say this as a Saints fan and the Falcons being the big rivals, this Fal the Falcons franchise has had an enormous stink attached to them for almost their whole existence. They did make the Super Bowl once, which was marred by a... Uh, solicitation <laughs> arrest for Eugene Robinson, uh, and they did not win that game. But the Falcons are this team, even when they're, you know, they've had all sorts of different players um, where you think, okay, they're the Falcons. They're just not going to, you know, make the Super Bowl. They're not going to succeed. That's just what this franchise is all about. And that's obviously absurd because they're different players. They're different coaches. They're like, there's not anything to really connect this team to, you know, what they've done in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or aughts. But with Matt Ryan, you kind of had the sense, okay, we know, you know, how good this team is going to be. We know what they're, you know, where they're going to end up. And then all of a sudden, this year, and with the help of Julio Jones, a star player, uh, you know, and if, they had used the next man up philosophy. They mm -hmm. would certainly not be in the Super Bowl. Um, they they have finally made it. And it just seems like so opposite to the Patriots for me, just from like a franchise history sense and a narrative sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, I mean, watching the Falcons yesterday, and I, I haven't watched that much uh, Falcons football this year, but I know that, you know, they have this historically great offense. And yeah, watching them yesterday, I mean, it's just, Jones is incredible. You know, it's just, he's this kind of incandescent talent. And it's, it's one of those seasons where having a guy like that on your team, who just seems to be doing incredible things week after week after week, uh, you know, obviously Matt Ryan is playing out of his mind as well. And it's like, yeah, it's, you know, that combination of those two guys, I mean, there's plenty of other guys on the Falcons offense who, who are really good, but yeah, it is sort of that kind of total star power, um, electrifying combination of, of those offensive players versus, yeah, the Patriots where obviously Brady is, is a huge superstar, but with Gronkowski out, you know, it's more of a kind of assemblage of people. They've got the running back by committee thing, um, this sort of hodgepodge of kind of possession receivers. Um, so it'll be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see which kind of style of football wins out. There's something, and you're like a huge basketball fan, I think, more than football, Jack. And there's something incredibly basketball-like about mm -hmm. Julio Jones in the way that as a single player, he just seems to dominate the game, especially with performances like that one. I mean, he, I guess you could compare him to Calvin Johnson in terms of his yeah. combination of size and speed and just, you know, ability to run over people and run around him. But is there something like LeBron-like does that NBA kind of star comparison work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to a degree. I mean, obviously, it's 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 sort of apples and oranges, particularly with, you know, just the, I mean, LeBron can alter his sport uh, in ways that are just, you know, pretty unique to basketball. But yeah, I think that there is something to that, you know, with Jones. I mean, he's just so good. And I mean, he's so incredible just at the simple act of catching the football. I mean, some of the catches yesterday were just fantastic. And yeah, I think he is the guy that like, you know, he can, he can change a game single-handedly and particularly in football, there's not many, particularly non-quarterbacks that can, that can really do that, that can give you that, that type of edge. And it's pretty, yeah, it's special to, to see it happen. 
I want to push back a little bit on the Matt Ryan. I mean, Peyton Manning was, I think, 30 when he finally got to a Super Bowl. Your own Drew Brees was 30 or 31 when he got to a Super Bowl. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to invalidate or to minimize their careers. I mean, with someone like Matt Ryan, what ends up diminishing him in the eyes of the general fan base is that he plays for the Atlanta Falcons. And until the Atlanta Falcons also become boring as shit, whatever <laughs> that is irrespective of his abilities as a quarterback, which have obviously flourished to their greatest heights this season. Um, but to say that, you know, it's late, it's not late. Matt Ryan, if the Falcons find a way to um, sustain the level of performance that they've had. I mean, look, they've had two fantastic running backs. Julio Jones, who is getting older, had a terrific season, six touchdowns, 1,400-something yards receiving. Um, this is a really good team. Not a great defense, but a really, really good team. Matt Ryan could conceivably make it to another Super Bowl or two or three before he retires. But what is what is there intrinsic about Atlanta that would make people not give him credit or pay attention to him. Atlanta is a major city. It's not like a small market. It's the way we perceive franchises in professional sports. We do this across the board. Athletes that spend their career with in second tier markets, not that Atlanta is a second tier place to live. It is just a perceptionally because of its history and its record, not viewed as an elite level team, a team that the nation cares about. Here's an excerpt from a New York Times piece about Matt Ryan. I'm kind of boring, Ryan often says in interviews. For instance, what is his favorite pizza? Cheese. His favorite <laughs> ice cream? Vanilla. <laughs> mm -hmm. What kind of cheese? Cheese. There, there could the be cheese, depth. The cheese there could kind. be some hidden thing. Matt Ryan might be the, the, you know, the strong silent type. Apparently so. Do you find anything to latch on to with uh, – Matt Ryan's completely blank visage and, and <laughs> bland character, Hamilton? I mean, I guess like my main, I, I sort of have a sentimental thing for Matt Ryan because he played at Boston College, which was, you know, growing up in Boston was sort of the only sports team, college sports team to root for. He was obviously playing there uh, long after I was finished growing up. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, you know, no, it's like he's he's pretty bland. I mean, he's very, he's a very, very good NFL quarterback, I think, you know, who may, who maybe is taking a leap to being a great one, you know, but it's, and it's interesting, as Stefan was saying, too, I think we're, you know, we're now seeing being a trend in the NFL, or at least it feels like a trend of, yeah, quarterbacks' careers, like having these kind of, you know, amazing flourishings well into their 30s, you know, certainly. Um, so it's quite possible that, yeah, I mean, Matt, Matt Ryan could make several more Super Bowls and change the way that we think about the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I do agree that I think there's something about the, the Falcons franchise that's just, you know, for, for most of its existence, it feels like it's just been sort of dully mediocre. Like it doesn't have the, right. you know, it doesn't have an 0-16 season like the Lions do or, you know, this crazy failure like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at points. Uh, but it also, yeah, you know, they made one Super Bowl. They got basically blown out by the, by the Broncos. And um, yeah, there's just not a lot of memorable history aside from things like, you know, the Michael Vick uh, saga and things like that. So. Hey, but they are building a new stadium to replace that ancient 25-year-old. <laughs> uh, among other kind of horrible broadcaster ticks, the, the Mr. Kraft thing being one of them, just the last couple weeks, what a beautiful facility. Unbelievable. <laughs> the best in the league. One and a half billion dollars. And they say that like it's a good thing. Like, wow. I can't believe one and a half billion dollars will go will get you so far in today's economy. It's like they're getting an amazing deal on whatever huge yeah. jumbotron they built. It's like please. Oh my God. All right, we are dancing around the, the main narrative of the next two weeks, which of course is going to be Mr. Kraft and Mr. Goodell and deflated Mr. footballs. Brady. And right. Mr. Brady. Um and the Patriots. Trump loyalties. So Goodell has avoided going to Foxborough. He hasn't been there since uh, the suspension, has he, Jack? I don't believe so. No. no. Yeah. And so that they, they will encounter each other at some point, it seems, during this long, you know, two-week Super Bowl preamble and will encounter each other on the field afterwards if the Patriots are lucky enough to win the game. So my view on all of this, just setting aside any kind of 
relitigating things that have already been litigated many times. So I'm just so grateful that the Patriots exist because it's so rare in sports, professional or otherwise, to have a franchise that is in our lives for so long with these two main characters that we've talked about that we kind of come to know and develop strong feelings about and are just almost kind of novelistic in the like bizarre twists and turns that they've taken, you know, with Spygate and the footballs. And it's, I just can't think of any other team where if you, you know, tune in every season, you can like set your watch by them being there and being like hateable by most of the, the populace. And like when you tune it, you know, when you watch the biggest games of the year in a league that's, you know, been defined by parody, they are always, their annoying ass faces are going to be there for you to just like want to, you know, see them smashed. It's, I don't actually feel that way, but a lot of people do. It is very impressive in modern sports culture to for a franchise to carve out such a distinctly reliable uh, personality. And that to me is what's the most impressive thing about the way the Patriots Well, Jack have said the Falcons have a reliable business. personality of being <laughs> a team that you never have to think about. But this is one we have to think about. And that's what makes the Patriots interesting, that they have through their arrogance and their 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 diminishment of the media and the culture of how we consume professional football and their success have created this utterly polarizing organization, which is great for the NFL, by the way. And don't think for a second that Roger Goodell gives a shit that his relationship with Mr. Kraft has deteriorated because of Deflategate. All this has done is enhanced the value of the Patriots and their value as a consumable public fan product. Yeah, as a Patriots fan, like the, the analogy I often use is it's like, like rooting for them, particularly in the last 10 years or so, has felt kind of like increasingly like rooting for like the Joker in the Batman movies, <laughs> except like, you know, this sort of like single-minded, psychotic, like, you know, just totally, uh, you know, obsessed with just sort of destroying everything. And yet it's like this alternate universe where Batman is himself this amoral corporate oligarchy, you know, like it's just like at a certain point, yeah, it's like I, I prefer rooting for the Patriots and rooting for the NFL. And, you know, at various points, it's really felt like that's that's the dichotomy. It's sort of like that weird, you know, and it's like, yeah, they've done a lot of awful stuff, but like, look who they're doing it to. <laughs> and the Joker is favored by three in Super Bowl <laughs> 51. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At just past the halfway mark of the NBA season, the Philadelphia 76ers are in heady territory. They're in 13th place out of 15 in the Eastern Conference. Hey, that's not awful. There are two teams that are worse. They're only five and a half games out of the last playoff spot. All right, that's that's all not that great. But for the first time since 2013, it's possible to do something other than patronize the Philadelphia 76ers. They've won eight of their last 11 games, I can say with genuine enthusiasm. Their center, Joel Embiid, is looking like a real star. And this year's number one overall pick, Ben Simmons, might be suiting up to play actual basketball just after the All-Star break. You could argue that the progress the Sixers seem to be making this season is a vindication of the plan, a.k.a. the process, engineered by Philly's general manager, Sam Hinkie, who was forced out before said process could reach this stage. You could also argue that any process that leads to a team being total garbage for three seasons and partial garbage for at least one more is not vindicatable. 
Here to help us adjudicate that issue is Chris Ballard of Sports Illustrated. He wrote a profile of Sam Hankey called After the Process for SI back in 2016. There's also like an After the Process graphic with Sam Hankey's face. It made it feel like it was like a CNN war theme or something. Uh, here, here, to the, here to discuss life after Hinky. It's Chris Ballard. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are the Sixers? Do you think? Is the so? Here's the way that I that I would like to frame this. You know, Sam Hinky had a plan. Was this team like being this level of good this year? Sam Hinkie's plan. Like how much can we attribute the, you know, slow rise of the franchise this year to intentionality, I guess is my question. It's a great question. Sam would, would look at it all in terms of probabilities, right? So he would tell you, there's no way anyone expected Embiid to be this good this quickly. But on the other hand, there were other factors that could have gone their way that hadn't. So in the balance, this is probably about when he always had said a four or five year plan going into it. So this is about when Sam expected to, to be respectable. And, and this point is also when he would have started making moves and weren't all intended just to dump salary uh, and try to play the market and, and gather this great assortment of second round picks to use as, as trade. He asked what they did in Houston is they would, when he was with Daryl Morey, when they became, you know, pseudo contenders on the outside of the contention, they would start making moves that weren't necessarily based on the future, but they would trade away future assets for current players. So I, I think there's an intentionality here. I don't think anyone could have predicted Embiid would come back from injury and be this this quickly. Uh, but there was certainly, it's interesting to watch the Clangos come in and make only a couple very small moves. I mean, there's like Ilya Sova and there's not much else they've done since then and it's to see the Sixers be like this I feel really good for Sixers fans they have they have waited this out does this mean that jettisoning Sam Hinkie was premature ill-considered ill-thought I mean after reading your profile and you it's you spent a lot of time with him um, he's moved from Philadelphia out to Silicon Valley he's got little kids he's basically been spending his time as you describe it sort of sucking up knowledge from various sources, whether it's startups in in California or in classrooms or meeting with basically anybody that says, hey, I have an interesting thought or idea. Why don't you come in and listen and contribute? Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating way for someone of means to be able to improve themselves. What does it say about Hinky's tenure with the Sixers and as they get better are the things that the NBA front office itself in New York and the Sixers ownership may have reacted too quickly to if Hinky was all about patience. Why weren't the owners patient? Well, it's a great question. You know, to the latter one, I think public perception got to them. Public perception did not get to Sam and you could argue it should have, you know, as much as he's in a growth mindset now. And, you know, as you referenced, uh, he's just going industry to industry and reading and meeting people and, and sucking up uh, as much as he can. Uh, he wasn't necessarily doing that in Philadelphia. I think that's been the great lesson he learned, that he probably should have altered course at the end there. You make a couple little moves, you open yourself up to the press a little more, and people perhaps, if they don't understand it, they at least see this human face behind it because the public perception of Sam is this um, – like evil genius robot in human form. And it couldn't be further from the truth. If you meet the guy, he's very affable. Uh, he's incredibly likable. He's almost a uh, homie in a way. And he's this sort of like Oklahoma thing going on. Uh, and of course his brain does work like that. But in person, if he'd gotten out there a little bit more, he probably could have smoothed over a little bit of the edges. And if he, he didn't campaign in Michigan or Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or in yeah. Bucks County. Yeah, all he needed to do was to last till now, and that's the that's the great what if is you know Sam lasts till now. He's probably being honored with Executive of the Year type of stuff. He did get votes last year, so now you know you see it. I I don't think it'll be hard for him to get another job, especially if the Sixers continue on like this. 
you know, Embiid is unbelievable. I mean, it's just watching him play is, I mean, he looks like a generational superstar, like a absolute franchise player. Um, you know, now even just, you know, in these last few months, it seems insane that two players were drafted ahead of him, even with all the, you know, the foot issues and things like that. That said, like, you know, the fragility is a real looming thing. He's not playing the type of minutes yet. And, you know, the type, you know, they're giving him games off, which makes sense, but there's still a lot of fear around his, um, you know, whether or not he can, you know, maintain his health. And I guess I'm wondering, is this a, like actually really a vindication of the process or is this really like they hit a home run on one guy? Because it kind of seems to me like a lot of the picks around him really haven't worked out. And it also seems like something where if they had any inkling that he was going to be this good and particularly this good this quickly, I think they would have drafted differently. I mean, maybe not, not, you know, Simmons, but certainly thinking about, you know, just how many bigs they've drafted in the past. Like what they really need now, it seems like, is perimeter players, and they don't, they don't really have any of those. So I'm wondering they, about, yeah. Yeah, they don't need Jalil Okafor and Nerlens Noel. Right, yeah. Exactly. And I, I think that's the, the real criticism of Hinky that, that you'll hear on the league is that for all of his planning and thought and the analytics, he just hasn't been a great evaluator of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so Hinky's going by, all right, let's look at the, the large span of history in the NBA. What is the consistently most valued asset? It's big men. So ergo, if I'm in a position to draft between, you know, a promising guard and a promising big man like Okafor, I will take the big man because he'll be a better trade asset down the road. Now, two things happen. Number one, the NBA has changed just during this period, the last five mm-hmm. years. You know, a big man is now your point guard, to be honest, right? Uh, a big man is, is no longer what it once was, and the value of them may still be there occasionally. You know, Festus Azili got a pretty big contract uh, from, from the Portland Trailblazers, but it's not, it's not rock solid. So right now there really isn't a trade market for Okafor, and that was mm-hmm. a mistake on Hinkie's part in not making that switch and saying, okay, well, maybe we don't just pick the big guy because the big guy is tradable. You know, Nerlens Noel is not especially tradable right now either. Um, so, number one, that happened. Number two, you're right. No one could have expected Embiid to be this good. So you say, okay, the, the actual thinking and, the, and the, the approach to this was sound from Hinkie's perspective, but he missed a lot more than he hit when it came to the talent. And that, mm-hmm. that's sort of the, okay, if we were to take Hinkie into a new job, I think a lot of people in ownership and gym would say, we'd love him to run this team, but we want someone next to him who really knows the talent. And that, unfortunately, things Sam, because he, he really, like, that's his passion. Well, yeah, mo- he is a basketball guy at heart. Well, most, most front office executives miss talent. I mean, it's... it's, it's but if I can interrupt for one second, Daryl Morey was really good, or has been really good, at getting guys in the draft um, who are, have more value than their draft position would um, indicate. As have other teams, as have the San Antonio yep. Spurs, right? So I mean, so when yep. you come back to Hinky, I mean, the 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 publicity around Sam Hinky was about the idea that he was different, that he mm-hmm. was an analytics veteran, that he was that he was um, a disruptor in the in the in the Silicon Valley barf barf. <laughs> um, but sports are not great places for disruptors in a radical sense. There's, you don't have much autonomy. There are too many constituencies that need to be pleased immediately. And by immediately, you don't mean that season, but in the near term, three or four years. And what Hinky failed to do was give any semblance. And as you said, Chris, like even just to talk about it more openly, that there was a short-term reward for fans that were being asked to spend tens of thousands of dollars to buy season tickets. Well, yeah, and his, his logic on it was if I tell people in the beginning, year one, year two, year three, what I'm doing, they will understand this and get on board, but I will lose my competitive advantage. And what's the end goal here? The end goal is a championship. Ergo, I will take the publicity hit in the short term mm-hmm. and it will pay off in the long term. And that worked. It just didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, the, what's so interesting about it is it did work. And there, I mean, he won almost every trade. That team is stacked as far as the assets they have. They have Ben Simmons, they have Embiid, and even with the misses, I mean, what, there's four, three or four, maybe max five teams 
you'd rather take over right now in the NBA. Brett Brown's a good coach. He made a good choice on that. So, so all that worked out, right? But, you know, he really had one shot at it, talking about, you know, the, quote, disruptor element of this. The league responded almost immediately and tried to change the lottery right. system based on what he did. You know, this is, this is a heavy, heavily regulated market he's coming into. Uh, you know, agents stopped working with him. Other teams, not all of them wanted to work with him. So it's not, a, not that Silicon Valley playing field that he was perhaps uh, comparing it to, but it certainly had one shot to work and it worked. And now, could you do it again? I, I don't think so. Well, not I'd be really curious the, how the league would respond. Not in the same way. Whatever you come up with now has got to be different. Well, what I think is big miscalculation was that there are a lot of different ways to lose there's not really that many different ways to win. You just have to have really good players. But mm-hmm. if you want to lose, you could lose in a lot more entertaining way than they did. There was nothing to latch onto with that franchise by design. They just put out minimum salary guys who they knew were going to play hard and that their best was just not going to be anywhere near good enough. But a lot of the goodwill around the team, it's not just about Embiid's amazing play it's about what a fun dude he is and just like he has the best personality of anyone in the nba and you could have constructed a roster around guys that would have been more i think fun and like the fans would have rooted for whether that's like i don't know if it's like jimmer fredette is the best is the best example or (laughs) or whether it's like or or if it's like a you know, like a bad player who would like score 35 a game or something. Just you need you need something. I mean, that shows that I shouldn't be the GM of a team. But <laughs> Nick Young. <laughs> but there's no, there, there's no P.T. Barnum or Bill Vectam is my point. Like, I just feel like on the floor, he could have made more of an effort to like because you're basically insulting the fans for three years and you're just like forcing them to like watch something reprehensible and there just should have been more of an effort made to do something about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the Bay area as a Warriors fan and before they're the Warriors, everyone know and love now they were exceptionally good at being bad. But one of the things the Warriors always had were these really devoted fans. And I think one of the reasons they kept hiring Don Nelson and Don Nelson would make losing 57 games fun. You know, that is a much better have... example than Jammer for Dead. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and so there's there's a value to that. Yeah, he wasn't necessarily developing talent, but Nelson also turned a bunch of D League guys like Anthony Tolliver and Kalen Azabuki into serviceable NBA players. And you know, he had Manute Bowl shooting threes. Like he made it this sort of like, hey, look at this shiny object instead of the fact that we really suck. You know, and I, I agree with you. I think that's what Hinky missed a bit. And I wonder a little bit, and I'm psychoanalyzing here, but if his kids had been a little bit older, if they'd been, they were really young in Philly, if they'd been a little bit older, there's that dad thing that kicks in where you're like, you know, I want to take my boy to the game. And, and, you know, there's got to be entertainment, not just win, win, win. Eight years from now, uh, maybe he sees it in a different perspective. His kids are that age now, and I wonder if it'll affect what he does next. Whoever gets them next. That is the version of Sam Hinkie that, that I think you would want as, a, as an ownership team. I have watched so much Sixers this year on League Pass because of the fact that Embiid is just uh, is amazing. And, yeah, there have been, you know, the T.J. McConnell um, game winners and things like that. There's been a lot of excitement. But, yeah, one person that it, it does kind of bum me out with is Nerlens Noel, who I think really could be, and he seems to be kind of coming around, um, but I think he has the talent to be, you know, not a, not a great NBA player, but a very, a very serviceable one and an exciting one. Um, and it just feels like having been there during the period he was there up until this year and even earlier this season, he was really unhappy and basically, you know, seemed like he, he wanted out. Like it really kind of feels like, yeah, this, there's this sort of human cost to it where it's like this young, exciting player who's early part of his career was kind of ruined or at the very least, you know, hopelessly stunted by this, you know, kind of 
philosophy that was just, yeah, it was kind of like there, there is this cost that, you know, thinking about Josh's, um, you know, talking about what this did to the fans, but thinking about someone like Nerland's Noel of like, what do you, how do you tell a 20 or 21 year old to, to kind of go along with this? You know, it's just sort of, yeah, it's, it's something, I, I don't know, that, that bugs me about it. Yeah, this is a issue. I mean, I've known Hinky about 10 years when he was in Houston. I used to argue with him about this. He always thought there wasn't value to having veterans on a team because they, you couldn't develop them. They weren't going to gain in trade value. You know, I sort of like that guy at the end of the bench, the Kevin Ollie, the Terry Cummings, mm-hmm. uh, who, who could mentor the younger players. He, he thought that was a sunk cost. You don't do that. But I look at this big – let's say you had Kendrick Perkins. You had Kendrick Perkins in there who was keeping Okafor and Noel in line, who was mm-hmm. texting them after the game at 1 a.m., you know, hey, man, keep your head up, whatever it is, uh, even like an aging Garnett as they did with Minnesota for Towns. This is how you work hard and practice. You know, this stuff matters. Uh, take it seriously. I think that really could have helped. I think that was another oversight they had there. You know, how would, how would Nerlens be better? Would he have complained about PT if he had some vet in his ear saying, Hey man, don't do that. You're long. If you want to get paid long term this league, you can't complain about PT now. You know, big right, soldier. Yeah. That that's what they missed was that kind of stuff. Chris Ballard's profile of Sam Hinkie is called After the Process. Wrote it for Sports Illustrated last year. We'll link to it on our show page. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last Wednesday, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, announced that three players had been voted in as part of the class of 2017. Tim Raines, who is in his 10th and final year of eligibility, he easily cleared the 75% threshold for induction, getting named on 86% of ballots, while Jeff Bagwell got to 86% on his seventh attempt. And Ivan Pudge Rodriguez, great catcher, just eked out the margin at 76% on his first try. Coming just short were closer Trevor Hoffman, who missed by five votes, and outfielder Vlad Guerrero, who missed by 15. Bagwell and Rodriguez both played in the steroids era and were suspected at various times uh, during their careers of taking performance-enhancing drugs, though neither player ever tested positive that we know of. In his book, Juice, Jose Canseco claimed that he personally injected Rodriguez with steroids. He also claimed in that book that he shot sharks with a shotgun. So take that for what it's worth. Um, Reigns very publicly admitted to using cocaine in the 1980s. He's testified at the uh, Pittsburgh cocaine trials. In, I think, 1985, he entered treatment after the 1982 season, and he said he slid into bases head first because he had vials in his hip pocket. None of that has much to do with his candidacy. I just always thought that that was an interesting detail. Anyway, the fascinating thing here is that Reigns' candidacy was boosted by a very aggressive push from the sabermetrics community spearheaded by writer and podcaster Jonah Carey, among others, that a large-scale effort to publicize voters' ballots also seems to have helped Reigns' cause. Can you explain that, Stefan? Yes, uh, particularly an effort by a fan named Ryan Thibodeau, who began publishing, uh, basically tracking the votes of writers in the Baseball Writers Association of America who are uh, allowed to vote for the Hall of Fame. So some people were making them public and they put it in the column and nobody had ever bothered – to group them all together. So he just made this massive data set that Correct. nobody had ever bothered He just to made do a spreadsheet. He, a spreadsheet. He basically used the publicly available tools to track down who had said well, who they, whom they were voting for. Um, and that has had an effect. I mean, it's not the only effect, but one of the effects, I think, is that you've seen more writers releasing their ballots. Um, there's a public pressure there in the in the in the baseball writer community to go public with who you're voting for. The second thing is the Hall of Fame has changed the rules for who can vote. You have to be an active baseball writer uh, sometime in X was it, ten years. Ten years. Yeah. They've changed some of the rules, which has weeded out a lot of the older writers who are no longer covering the sport. 
Um, and I think the combination of those has led to a sort of public shaming process. There's an influence. Uh, the, I don't know if it's shaming, but there's a, there's a public influence. If you know how everyone else is voting and you see that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, for instance, their numbers have been going up, you may be more inclined to join the pack and, and adopt some of the arguments for for voting for them for the Hall of Fame. And the other part of that, which I think is related to who gets to vote, is that younger people are voting and there is a far wider acceptance of sabermetrics and a more rigorous evaluation overall of candidates for the Hall of Fame. thing that I find interesting, Jack, is that Reigns wasn't really considered a star or much less a superstar. I guess he was considered a star. These terms are meaningless. I don't know why I'm <laughs> adjudicating between star and superstar. But Ricky Henderson overlapped his career. Ricky Henderson was, you know, flashier, better numbers in a lot of the traditional categories than Tim Raines had. And it's just fascinating to see a guy who long after his career is over, people today kind of are looking at him and thinking of him entirely differently than contemporaneous folks did. And I don't know, uh, how do you feel about that? Does that seem weird? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a little bit weird. I mean, I, I will say personally, um, one of the first baseball cards I ever had was a uh, Tim Raines Expos card that like was labeled something like, you know, all-star or something. So I've always thought of Tim Raines as a star. <laughs> I think that was when I was about five or six years old. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely someone who, you know, if you lived, you know, lived through the era when he was, um, was playing was, yeah, it comes to the, the kind of eye test thing. Was there ever a time that you really thought of Tim Raines as like one of the most dominant players in his sport? Probably not. Like he's not, you know, one of the, one of the people who you certainly someone like Ricky Anderson would, um, would far eclipse him in terms of uh, this, that kind of status. I mean, there's other, you know, there's arguments that can be made about how, you know, he, he played a lot of his prime in Montreal, which wasn't, you know, um, exactly the hub of the the baseball universe. But yeah, this question of, you know, retroactively evaluating players, I guess it comes back. To, I mean, this is the most cliched thing, but you know, what is the hall of fame for? Is it to get, is it to enshrine people who, you know, have this sort of outsized impact on the cultural memory versus, you know, maybe they're strictly on field uh, contributions or is it for, you know, yeah, like to really honor the the people who, by kind of scientific measurements, we 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 can uh, claim to be the best in the sport. And I think it's 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 kind of an unanswerable question. I mean, it's interesting with the Hall of Fame voting that you know Kurt Schilling still has not gotten in, who's someone who certainly has looms enormously in the kind of cultural memory of baseball in the 21st century. Um, but yeah, he is not, you know, he, he's, he's, he's not made it. And that might have to do with his, his Twitter feed and <laughs> Facebook memes. Um, yeah, but fuck yeah, that I mean, guy. Some... You know, you're, if you're borderline and you're an asshole, right. you're not going to get much sympathy because it is obviously subjective. <laughs> this is not, this is not freaking science. Um, but if you're Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, yeah. I think you can, there is a case to be made that, regardless of what they did. And this is the case that is being made. And I think that younger, more thoughtful, more analytically inclined voters um, are considering that look, Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer before he did whatever he did. And Roger Clemens was certainly arguably a Hall of Famer before he started doing whatever he did. And I think your point about cultural memory is the valid one. I mean, I've always felt, look, Halls of Fame are kind of stupid anyway, and they're right. there to aggrandize the, the industry and to make retired athletes feel good. Um, but if you're going to have them, what you should be acknowledging, honestly, is, is players, athletes, managers, um, roles, officials, executives, roles in, the, in influencing the game. And it is undeniable that for whatever reasons, they influence the game. Their statistical performances plus their newsworthiness combined to make them deserving beyond any argument of being in the Hall of Fame. Of course, this is a building that hasn't let Marvin Miller in, so screw the Hall of Fame too. The point about Reigns that I think is interesting that you're getting at, Jack, is that our perception of these guys is just necessarily influenced by how they were thought of and covered at the time. And if you transported the media 
of today and the baseball fans of today to the 1980s than we would have thought of Tim Raines as a superstar as a player, mm-hmm. back then. Yeah, and we would have known about his wins above replacement and just kind of gawked at his great on-base percentage. And so I actually don't think it's that useful um, to say, oh, well, we didn't think of him as a star compared to Ricky Henderson. And um, I, I realize now I'm shooting down my own rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah. But um, the other thing that I find fascinating here is that with the public release of ballots, you can make an analogy to what 538 does in their collection and aggregation of polls. And Nate Silver actually talks about how one of the main ways that error and misapprehension seeps into polling averages is the fact that all of the pollsters can see what the other polls say. And so there's this phenomenon called herding, where if you have like a massive outlier poll, if you say, you know, somebody's up by 10 points and everybody else has it dead even, you're going to look at your poll and say, I've got, I've done something wrong and I'm going to try to, you know, move back towards the average. And I think that's clearly what's going on here is that people who don't pick Tim Raines or Jeff Bagwell based on whatever considerations they have are going to look at all these public ballots that have them and be like, maybe I'm doing something wrong and I should pick right. those guys, which yeah. we can argue is a good thing if they're, you know, if it's in favor of candidates that we like. But there is something probably to the good with having a secret ballot, nobody knowing what anybody else is thinking. And then you get kind of a true sense of what the electorate, you know, thinks about something. It's impossible given, you know, as you said, Stefan, people were already making their ballots public. And this is just a kind of concerted effort to put everything in a spreadsheet. So this is just like hypothetical wish casting. But this does not seem like the best way to take a really accurate temperature of what every voter thinks about every candidate. And in 2018, by the way, everyone is going to have to publish their their ballots. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one not to keep turning everything back to the NBA, but <laughs> you know, the NBA has made their year end um, voting. Uh, you know, for the awards, they've they've made that public. And there's a sort of prevailing theory that one of the reasons that Steph Curry was the unanimous MVP last year, the first one ever, is because ballots were public and no one wanted to be. You know, there was such a consensus that he was MVP. No one wanted to be the lone dissenter that voted for you know LeBron or or Durant or Westbrook or whoever. Um, You're going to take then, a know, lot of shit on Twitter if you were that right, guy. Right, exactly, exactly. But then, you know, obviously you watch the, the finals last year and it starts to feel a little bit like, oh, maybe, you know, like a few dissenting votes. I mean, obviously I think Curry still should have won the MVP, but... Yeah, I think like there, there's some validity to the, to what you're saying, Josh, about the hurting element and the sort of the, the encouragement of consensus that, that, um, is maybe a, you know, unintentional byproduct. Except when it comes to the baseball hall of fame voting, what the hurting will lead to is it'll eliminate assholes who don't vote for people like Tom Seaver or Ricky Henderson or any undeniable hall of famer the first time to make a statement. There were 28 people that didn't vote for Ricky Henderson. Mm-hmm. Got in on the first ballot with ninety five percent of the votes, but there were twenty eight shitheads that didn't vote for Ricky Henderson. <laughs> well, you're presuming that we should care about that. Maybe we should. I'm not. Uh, well, sure. I'm not sure that we should. Well, but. in in I'm not sure that we should in a in a in a in a large sense, <laughs> but in the narrow sense of paying attention to who votes for the Hall of Fame and who gets in, we do care or we do pay attention to it. The last thing I will say is that, and I think it's worth saying because other. People seem to disagree for some reason. Obviously, having the media vote is the best way to do these stupid things. And you saw this with, you know, the player vote being added to um, NBA All-Star voting. And you had players voting for like Ben Simmons, who's never played an NBA game. It's like the players vote was clearly dumber than the media vote, even though you'll we'll never be able to get rid of this argument that only the players know who is great. They're obviously going to like vote for their friends and their favorites in the same way that the that the media does. And like a smart writer who, or a member from any, another branch of the media who takes it seriously and weighs everything could like weigh what the players assessments are, but there's, 
there's just not going to be a better system than that. And it's going to be flawed no matter what the system is. But to think that just like having the players do it would fix anything is kind of laughable. All right, back to the NBA to to button this up. It was actually the players had uh, Russell Westbrook as their number one guard. And it was the fans who had Curry in the top spot. And it's the fans are the tiebreaker according to the NBA system. So Curry's going to start in the backcourt for the West in the All-Star game. Speaking of things that we probably shouldn't care about. And Westbrook is going to be coming off the bench. Yeah, Westbrook, who is currently averaging a, a triple-double, um, probably deserves a, a starting nod. But hey, you know, the fans, the fans are going to get what they want. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls and NBA All-Star voting. Uh, The players were allowed to vote this year. They were allowed to uh, vote for themselves. And so there are a bunch of guys who only got one vote. Uh, I think these guys are strong candidates mm-hmm. to have only voted for themselves. Mo Williams is a confusing one who only has one vote because he hasn't even played in the NBA this year. Do you, do you get a, vo- a vote if you d- aren't a player? <laughs> that one is like a weird kind of uh, philosophical question. So I don't know if we want to really I want to know if Mindogus Kuzminskis voted for himself because maybe, you know, maybe Porzingis voted for Kuzminskis. That's possible. I'm going to go with Rashawn Holmes to keep up with our Sixers theme, and also because I've never heard of him. <laughs> but Jack, you watch them on League Pass. You probably you probably support the Rashawn Holmes candidacy. I totally, yeah, 100%. I stuffed the ballot box for him. <laughs> All right. You ready to, to give us your Rashawn Holmes, Jack Hamilton? Sure. So my Rashawn Holmes is actually uh, another basketball player, which uh, might be confusing. But uh, yeah, my afterball is a peon uh, to a player who will not be starting in the All-Star game, but is having a truly remarkable NBA season. Uh, and that is Boston Celtics point guard Isaiah Thomas. Um, he will almost certainly be playing in the All-Star game. Um, Isaiah Thomas, for uh, people out there who are not familiar, is five feet nine inches tall. Uh, he was literally the last pick in the NBA draft uh, in 2011, and he's about to make his second All-Star game. Um, He's having an incredible season. He's leading the NBA in fourth quarter scoring, um, which has led to a very stupid Game of Thrones-inspired nickname, King in the Fourth. (laughs) Um, And on Friday night, Isaiah Thomas scored 41 points in an overtime loss to the Blazers, which raised his points per game average to a pretty incredible 29 points per game. Uh, Again, he's five foot nine. He's averaged, he averaged 30 points a game in December uh, and scored a career-high 52 on December 30th, and he's now averaging 33 a game in January, which means there's a not insignificant chance that he could average 30 points a game for the season. What's crazy about this is how he does it. He has so many different ways to score. He's lightning quick, but also unbelievably strong for his size. Uh, you know, makes just converts tons of you know and one and one baskets. Uh, he probably has the best floater in the NBA right now, and just has this incredible ability to get his shot off. Um, another amazing thing about him is that he's currently scoring 29 per game on less than 20 shot attempts. Um, per game. And I've looked this up and there's only been three other players in NBA history to accomplish this. Uh, one, perhaps unsurprisingly, was Shaquille O'Neal, who did it once. Another was Carl Malone, who did it three times. And the third, somewhat surprisingly, is Adrian Dantley, who also did it three times. But all three of these are front court players. I mean, Dantley was an undersized small forward, but none of them were close to 5'9". Um, and the other thing that I really love about Isaiah Thomas is that he's 
comically awful on defense. He currently rates uh, 438th in ESPN's uh, defensive real plus minus, which is literally the last slot on the entire tracker. Uh, He's the worst defensive player that ESPN is tracking in that category. Uh, But he's eighth place in offensive real plus minus, which is just one spot behind Steph Curry and two ahead of uh, DeMarcus Cousins. Um, So just a a really extraordinary season that Isaiah is having um, and just an incredible uh, testament to sort of all the things he does on one side of the ball and all the things he he really does not do on the other side of the ball. I just would really want to congratulate you on abusing statistics because Steph Curry scored 30 last year on 20.2 shot attempts a game, <laughs> just over that 20, that, that uh, 20 shot attempt threshold. But he's yeah, awesome. Well, you know. <laughs> Isaiah Thomas deserves all statistical abuse that we can foist upon him because he is the most incredible player in the NBA. He is an extraordinary player. Stefan. What is your Rashawn Holmes? I remembered his name. I pulled my copy of Ball 4 off of the shelf this morning. It's something I try to do every spring. It's winter, but there's a reason I pull it off now. Um, I first read Ball 4 in, I don't know, 7th or 8th grade, and I've read it at least a half dozen times since then, probably more. Um, It's absolutely one of the reasons that I became a writer. Ball 4 was revolutionary, not just because it dished about beaver shooting and drunk Mickey Mantle and Sal Magley, Sal the Barber, my fucking idol, and added the words shit fuck and fuck shit to my teenage working vocabulary. It was revolutionary because it was the most honest sports book ever written about both the inner workings of the game, the repressive anti-player behavior of team owners and the commissioner's office in the reserve clause era, and the fragile psyches of the people who played and coached baseball, especially that of the author Jim Bouton. And it was revolutionary and personally revelatory because it was conversational and honest and unpretentious. My copy is in really bad shape. It's a first printing of the paperback from 1971. I'm showing it to Josh right now. It ball- came to the office in a Ziploc bag. Yes, it did. It's got ball four written in big green capital letters, and there's a picture of Bouton gripping a knuckleball on the cover. The spine is taped. The cover's ripped. The pages are yellowed. Some are falling out. The signature on the back of the cover is my friend Matt Veer. I borrowed it from Matt and never returned it. Sorry, <laughs> dude. In other words, my copy would fit right in with the trove of Ball 4 source material, which Bouton recently put up for auction. The collection includes all of Bouton's notes for the book, written on scraps of paper in the dugout, on index cards, plane tickets, the backs of envelopes, a Pan Am barf bag. There are cassettes on which Bouton recorded his thoughts and the publisher's edits, uh, which feature 42 instances of lawyers demanding Bouton to sanitize details, which he largely refused to do. And there's correspondence with the suits at Major League Baseball who tried to get Bouton to apologize for the book after publication, which Bouton also refused to do. Bouton is 77. He had a stroke that's made talking and writing difficult. He and his wife, Paula Kerman, decided to keep a few items from his career for themselves and their children and sell the rest. The auction ended on Saturday. Bouton separately sold equipment and uniforms and other stuff from his 10-year career in the 60s and 70s with the Yankees and other teams. Much of that went for far above the minimum bid, but the Ball 4 memorabilia didn't sell. According to the website of SCP Auctions, there were 22 bids, but the high bid didn't meet the reserve price, the minimum that the seller would accept. The head of the auction house had told Tyler Kepner of the New York Times that he expected the collection to go for between $300,000 and $500,000. The high bid was $327,000, including the commission, in that sale range, but obviously not enough to meet the Bouton's desired price. Major League Baseball's official historian, John Thorne, he's a friend of the Boutons, told me this morning that he's disappointed for them, uh, but he said that other solutions are possible. An institution like the New York Public Library could buy the collection, or a private donor could do that and then donate it to the Baseball Hall of Fame for a tax break. I'm bombed for the Boutons, too. To me, the Ball Four collection is an important piece of baseball history, of publishing history, and of Americana. It'll make for an awesome display on the 50th anniversary of the book. Book in 2020, whether that's at the Smithsonian or Cooperstown or elsewhere. So rich baseball fan, if you're listening, buy the Bouton collection, donate it, and then we can all go out and pound some Budweiser. Josh, what's your Rashawn Holmes? So I have a plan to fix the NBA, parenthetical, in an incredibly small bore way. Here's my plan. So there are a couple big issues with the league um, at the top and at the bottom. There are not 
that many teams going into the year who have a chance to win a title. And we just talked a lot about the Sixers. There are certain teams that have incentives not to try to win. There are fewer teams like that this year than there have been in the past. But the new collective bargaining agreement actually makes it a better proposition to lose on purpose because you can hold on to your star players longer. That means that the value of having a high draft pick is greater. And so teams are just going to want to do whatever they can to get these like number one, number two, number three picks. And the way to do that is to be really bad. Okay. So here's my plan. We just saw last week, um, Warriors Cavs, the second game of the year. Wasn't a great game, but this was appointment viewing. I made sure to watch it. The game on Christmas Day was unbelievable, but these teams are in opposite conferences. They only play twice a year, home and home. The teams from the West and the teams from the East, they only each play each other twice a year. We want to see Warriors-Cavs more than that. We want to see the teams that played in last year's finals and the teams that are likely to play in uh, this coming year's finals. We want to see how they match up against each other. We want to see what adjustments they make. We want to kind of take the temperature of the matchup at various points across the year. And two games really isn't enough to do that. So my proposal is to have the teams from the previous year's finals, and that would be the Warriors and Cavs in this case, play three times in the subsequent season instead of two. And instead of a home-and-home, you give two home games to the team, the Cavs, that won the previous year. So you'd have two games in Cleveland. You'd have one uh, one in Oakland. And you would have the first of those games be opening night and be the opening game of the season. Just like in the NFL, you have this game on the first Thursday. Everybody wants to tune in. It's the big launch to the start of the season. I'm not like super concerned about like the NBA's marketing efforts. They can like deal with that themselves. But I would think this would be a reason that they would want to adopt this, that the NBA season now does not really tip off with much of a bang. But this would be a way to get all of the media, all the fans' attention in the arena of the defending champion they could get their rings raise the banner in front of the team they beat that would be everyone would want to watch that that would be a great game and they would play really hard like this wouldn't there wouldn't be any sitting of starters popovich style in that game then you would have the second matchup on the losers home floor on christmas sort of like we do now and then you would have the third matchup Back um, in Cleveland, in this case, you would have it sometime like just after the All Star break, because now like it's going to be between you know from uh, you know January all the way through uh, you know June potentially that these teams don't play each other, and that's too long. All right, so how do you make up that extra game? These two teams are going to be playing each other three times. You need to get rid of a game on their schedule. This is how you punish the tankers. You take the team the wor- the team with the worst record from the opposite conference and you deprive them of a home game against the best team in the other conference so this year golden state would not play in philadelphia you would punish the sixers for the process you're not going to get to see the best uh you know team from the west you're not going to get an easy you know sell out on your home court and cleveland would not play in la they would be punished for um you know, their poor performance last year. Golden State and Philly would actually be kind of a fun game. I'm just being intellectually honest here. It wouldn't always uh, be this fun, but I think it makes sense to me to try to make tanking at least like 0.1% less tenable and your fans would be pissed at you if they didn't get to see Golden State. So there would, you know, if you want to piss off your fans, you'd have to take that into consideration. So this is my plan. Uh, some people might complain that, oh, like, you know, it's tougher on, you know, Golden State and Cleveland that they're going to have a tougher schedule. Well, the NBA season is long enough that that doesn't really matter in my view. Stefan, do you sign on to the Levine plan to fix I'm, the NBA? I am first on the petition. Yeah. How many how many signatures do we need to get one. an official response from Adam Silver? I think one. 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 All right. And release your tax returns, Adam Silver. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. 
Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook on facebook.com slash listen. Thank you to Jack Hamilton for filling in this week. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer today was Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zamo Beatty, and thanks for listening.